Hello and welcome to Invisible Hate. I'm Asad Bhatt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Sadia, how's your week been going? It's been going well, Asad. But before I tell you what I did this week, I want to know what you've been <laughs> up to. I've seen some interesting pictures. Yeah, we've been traveling out to Boston, where I'm from, and we are recording a new podcast. And that podcast is on Martha's Vineyard, which I, I don't know if you know, it's an island off the coast of Massachusetts. And, you know, it's known for you know, vacation, summer land, you know, that kind of stuff. And so we are doing a story out there that has to do with the, the incident in Chappaquiddick with the Kennedy family back in 1969. Oh. And so, yeah, it was fun to be on the island. I mean, whew, have, I don't know if you've ever been to Martha's Vineyard, but what a beautiful place. I've never been, but the podcast idea, oh my gosh, it sounds super dope. I don't know, Asad, how you come up with these interesting <laughs> ideas. Where do yeah, you get you know, them from? This one came to us, which was really exciting. And so I guess if you do it long enough, Sadia, the ideas come to you and you don't have to come up with the ideas yourself. Yeah. Um, but no, it was exciting. You know, we're investigating a theory about the, the case and um, we were on the island and interviewing a lot of people and... Now we're kind of sifting through all the, the interviews and, and we'll put something together, hopefully release uh, a year from now, roughly. Oh, my God. I said, I can't wait to listen to that. And I'm sure our listeners would be so excited. Yeah, as I hope well. so. I mean, I think it'll be it'll be pretty exciting. So how was your week, Sadia? My week was good. So as you know, I said, I consume podcasts on a daily <laughs> yeah. basis and I eat bagels oh, every day. Okay. So podcasts are like my favorite thing. And the next best thing is eating bagels. But let me tell you this. I was listening to an interesting podcast. It's called What a Creep. Oh. Yeah. And this is about creeps, <laughs> past and present. <laughs> this is how they describe their podcast, okay? It's hosted by Margot Donahue and Sonia. I don't remember Sonia's last name. My apologies, but I know it's Margot Donahue. And it's a fascinating conversation about basically assholes. Oh, okay. And the episode that I listened to talked about Pat Sajak. Oh, from Wheel of Fortune? Yes. And after listening to that podcast, I dislike the guy even oh, more. Oh, no. You're going to ruin like such a like important <laughs> part of my childhood and upbringing. What, tell me more. I don't know. I said there was a lot of disturbing information about this guy okay. who they define as a creep. And, you know, it got me thinking. I said, do you have any creeps in your life? Plenty. I mean, I think people probably call me a creep, right? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm, <laughs> no you're not a creep yeah, at Thank you. All, I appreciate Asa. that. No, thank you. That I would imagine that there are people in my life. I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, but wow. I, now I want to listen to this podcast. You should listen to the podcast. And I kept thinking about creeps in my life. And obviously, I will not call them out. <laughs> not on a podcast, I said. Are they all men? Oh, yeah. yeah it seems like... <laughs> Hey, there's a probably an overlap of people that commit hate crimes and people that are creeps, right? There's like a probably You're a big right. over overlap of You're that. You're right. Yeah. But I would love to hear your thoughts, Asad. So why don't you listen to it? And maybe next time we can discuss this more. That sounds good. Salia, did you read this article that came out a couple of weeks ago about how watching true crime stories to relax might be a big red flag? I wanted to share it with really? you, but I was on vacation and I totally, totally forgot to send it to you. Oh, my God. Basically, yeah, the woman who's like the president of the American, you know, Psychologists Association or something like that basically said that, you know, if you're watching a lot of true crime stuff, especially like to fall asleep, 
there might be a reason for that. And it's a big red flag that maybe you need to get, you know, some help and, and whatnot. So, <laughs> Salia, I, I don't know. Do you, do you watch like episodes of Law and Order to go to sleep? I don't, Asid. So I listen to True Crime when I'm driving oh, to the okay. city. All right. So it's in the morning, early afternoon. That's maybe yeah. like a yellow flag, not a red flag. Maybe. Yeah, it's probably a yellow flag. <laughs> But you know what? I was thinking why we listen to them so much. And we've discussed this before. But I think it's just morbid curiosity. Yeah. More than moral superiority. It feeds into something that we lack or miss or are insecure about. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyways, I said talking about true crime podcasts. Let's talk a little bit about Invisible yeah, Hate. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, why don't we introduce Invisible Hate to people that haven't listened before? Absolutely. So for our new listeners, Invisible Hate is a podcast that sheds light on the worst true crimes that are motivated by things like race, religion or sexual orientation and are usually perpetrated against minorities. So in this podcast, we are talking about social issues and impact of hate crimes, not just on individuals, but also on communities. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And so today we are revisiting our very first episode. It's one that was extremely traumatic to the American Muslim community and one that we think is important to remember. Stay tuned and at the end we'll share some updates. Our first case today is about three murders in North Carolina. I just heard gunshots. I don't know what building it came from, but I heard kids screaming. Chaos is evening in Chapel Hill after a shooting left three people dead. Three Muslim students are dead. They're dead after being shot in an apartment near the University of North Carolina. Okay, Savia, so we start on February 10th, 2015 at 515 in the afternoon. Local police in Chapel Hill responded to reports of gunshots heard at the Finley Forest condominiums on Summer Walk Circle. When they got there, they found one body lying dead in the front doorway, bleeding from the head. Another body, a female, was found dead in the kitchen, and a third body, another female, was found in the doorway of a room. The three victims were Dia Barakat, his wife, Yusor Abu Salha, and her sister, Razan. They were all college or graduate students that grew up in Raleigh, and Yusor and Dia had recently gotten married. They were all living in the apartment where the murders happened. They were 23, 21, and 19 years old. So young. All of them were pronounced dead at the scene, and all of them had gunshot wounds to the head. A witness outside actually told police that he heard shots and saw a man leaving the condominium and then driving off in a gold car. Police found eight shell casings in the living room and a bullet somewhere else inside the home. That man that left, his name was Craig Hicks. He actually ended up turning himself into police later that night. He was about 15 to 20 miles away. Hicks, who was 46, was in possession of a 357 caliber handgun. It turns out that Hicks lived in the same condo complex as the victims, and he apparently called his wife after he was arrested to say, quote, this is not your fault and have a good life. Investigators later were able to match up the ballistics of the handgun to the casings uh, they found in the apartment, so we know that Hicks is the guy that killed these three victims. 
this is a gut punch, the whole story so far. And I have so many questions for you. But we'll start with the basics. So who is this Hicks guy and why did he murder Dia, Yusser and Razan? Yeah, so we actually know a lot because Dia was actually recording the encounter on his cell phone camera. I have not seen the footage, but according to prosecutors and reports, Hicks knocked on the victim's door and then Dia opens it up. And as soon as he does that, Hicks starts complaining about how they were breaking condo rules by taking up more parking spaces than was allowed in the parking garage. He then just opens fire. First, he shoots Dia multiple times in the doorway. Then he enters the living room, shooting both of the sisters. He then shoots Dia again before leaving. And what's crazy, Sade, and really just like every time I read this and think about it, according to the autopsies, the sisters were shot execution style. You know, I said, I cannot wrap my head around the whole parking violation issue. I don't think it was that. It's probably a lot more. I'm curious to know where this story is headed. But what do we know about the victims? Because I would rather focus on them, celebrate their young lives, than focusing on this evil, evil guy. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And so I'm actually like getting a little emotional just kind of like reading this again. But you know, Dia was 23 years old. He was a second year student at the University of North Carolina Dental School. He's described online in reports as just like a regular American kid. Giving and being in service to others was kind of at his core. That's how people described him online. He was the youngest of three, and he loved basketball, he loved his family, and he loved his friends. You know, he was recently married to Yusser, and they actually met in elementary school in 2014, and they got married one day after her 21st birthday, so young newlyweds. Yusser had recently learned that she was accepted to the School of Dentistry as well at the University of North Carolina. According to reports, she also led a life of service. Uh, For example, she organized an annual health fair for the underserved in her hometown of Raleigh. Yusser's sister, Razan, was 19 years old, and she was a student at North Carolina State University School of Design. She also did a lot for other people, according to reports online. She loved to paint and sold portraits of peace, donating thousands of dollars in proceeds to provide medical and humanitarian aid to children in the Middle East. She's been described as an avid reader and photographer and a long-distance runner. You know, I looked up pictures of them online. You can see a couple of them across the web, and they just look like good people. You know, like they're smiling, and they just look like they loved life. This picture of them, they're full of life, but just to think that they were just taken in their prime, you know. And one thing I should note about the picture is that both Razan and Yusor wore hijab, One little interesting tidbit that I found in the research was that in that summer after they got murdered, all three of them were planning to go abroad to provide dental and humanitarian care to refugees fleeing war. These were good kids. A maniac enters somebody's house, a place where one feels most safe, right? And then murders all three do at least execution style. 
there is so much to celebrate about their lives they were young they had a whole life ahead of them they had plans they were doing so much humanitarian work even as young 19 and 20 year olds they were intentional about what they wanted to give back to the community and the kind of lives all of them wanted to lead but you also talk about both yusir and rizan wearing hijab which to me is like okay they both wore hijab which means they were visibly muslim or they could be identified with their culture and their religion and that in my mind and i'm just thinking out loud probably played into what really happened that day everything that you can do as a muslim or be as a muslim hijab is the one that is so visible you know right away or you can i guess make assumptions that that the person is muslim and so you'd have to imagine that in a place like north carolina where yeah i'm sure there's some student diversity and there's a little bit of diversity but i would imagine that it was uncommon to see people wearing hijab on the street and so yeah certainly i think that they probably had a target on them walking around their apartment complex or their city as well have you ever worn hijab I haven't and I am in awe of women who do because it is a brave act for them it's just an expression of who they are exactly. but in current political and social discourse in America it has become an act of bravery or resilience which it shouldn't be right right And I just want to circle back to North Carolina. I read a few recent reports which indicate that North Carolina is becoming more diverse, but then there are equally conservative voices and there is a lot of misinformation when it comes to immigrants, immigrant identity, immigrant experiences. And again, that may have played a role into how this guy perceived the three young folks who were living in his apartment complex and that's a great segue into knowing more about him so what do we know about hicks you know white guy he had no criminal record but was known to a lot of the neighbors at the complex as the parking bully hmm and so it was said that he was rude to white neighbors but more threatening to non-white neighbors since moving there 7 years before He regularly left leaflets on cars in the parking lot and called the towing company so often that the housing association had to intervene. So this guy really was obsessed with this parking issue for whatever reason. Could he be called a vigilante? Yeah, I guess a parking vigilante would be a great term. You know, and I've lived next to people who are obsessed with what's going on in their neighborhoods, but I've never had someone, you know, live near someone quite like this before. How about you? No, I haven't, and I'm so grateful that I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So Hicks's wife, his ex-wife now, told her lawyer that Hicks would stare out the window and obsess over neighbors' parties, patterns, and parking. She actually suggested that he go to counseling because he got so agitated over it. 
And then a warrant later on showed that he kept pictures and detailed notes on parking activity on his computer. So he was tracking everything, the comings and goings of all of his neighbors in this condo complex. Really obsessive. Another neighbor reported that residents had held a meeting in the previous year about his aggression and how it made them feel uncomfortable and unsafe. But according to reports, nobody actually told the police about this. What we know from doing research online is that Hicks was incredibly anti-religion. He described himself as a gun-toting libertarian and anti-thesis, so basically yeah, just against religions of all sorts. He posted on Facebook that he wanted religion to go away, and he actually posted some anti-Islam comments as well. He had a huge collection of guns and a concealed carry permit, and afterwards police seized over a dozen firearms, three of them loaded, and a cache of ammunition from his home after the murders. So this guy really was a piece of work, it seems. Right. And I wonder if he had any prior interactions with the three victims before that fateful night. We will definitely get to this for sure, Sally. I think your intuition is correct. Have you ever lived in an apartment complex like this? I did, but that was almost 15 years ago, and everybody was extremely nice and friendly. I never faced any kind of microaggression or discrimination, at least at that point. I yeah. faced it in other forms and in other situations, but not from my neighbors. Yeah. I've lived in these type of situations as well, living in an apartment complex and then a condo complex as well. And yeah, you know, people are very particular about the comings and goings and the rules. The, the rules are a big thing for sure. And people can really take this stuff super personally because it's your home, you know. But on the flip side, the home is where you're supposed to feel the most safe. Right. Dia, Yusser, and Razan, they were in their home. That was, you know, that's supposed to be their, their the safest place in the world for them. And for this to happen, you know, in their home really is just uh, so shocking. You know, Asit, I'm glad you said that because due to the circumstances and how this whole thing unraveled, I just cannot fathom or believe that it was a mere parking dispute. And as I am listening through this conversation, I am curious to know why do you think this crazy evil man, that's what I want to call him, yeah. why would he target these nice, young, sweet, loving people. So what we know is when Yusur and Dia got engaged, they started obviously spending a lot more time together, as would naturally happen when you get engaged with someone. And so Yusur started coming over to Dia's place a little bit more, and that seemed to annoy Hicks. At that time, Dia had a roommate. That roommate actually moves out, and then Yusur moves in when they get engaged or get married. I couldn't figure out when in the timeline that happened. But during this process, what happens is that Hicks actually tells Yusser's mother, who also wore hijab, quote, I don't like the look of you people get out of here. So that right there is a red flag. The guy has explicitly expressed his hate towards Muslims. It's really shocking. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's not uncommon for Muslim women who wear hijab to hear these kind of comments, you know? Right. 
So things actually started getting worse. The fall before the murders, Hicks actually goes to the apartment with a holstered gun. So like, you know, a gun in his side and said that the dinner party that they were hosting had woken up his wife. I'm not sure if police were ever called. And then Dia's old roommate, the one that had moved out, had also reported that Hicks had yelled at Usor like six times and left a note on her car. Friends suspected the aggression was because she was Muslim, but the truth is, is that Dia and Yusur were polite to Hicks and appeased him by asking visitors to park on the street, and then the murders happened. What is really shocking, we'll discuss this a little bit more, is that five days after the murders, the Chapel Hill Police Department stated that their, quote, preliminary investigation indicates that the crime was motivated by an ongoing neighbor dispute over parking. I did want to make sure that folks knew that based on all the information that our office and that law enforcement has at this time, that the events of yesterday are not part of a targeted campaign against Muslims in North Carolina uh, or anything other than an individual event. First of all, this is complete bullshit to me. I want to go back to something that you said, I said earlier about Dia and Yusuf being so polite. So in my mind, I'm thinking there was no provocation in this whole situation, right? Yeah. Although he was interacting with them, he was being aggressive towards them, he was yelling and shouting, yet both Dia and Yusuf tried to keep calm, maintained civil behavior, were interacting with him in a very polite manner, which indicates that this guy had no reason, and there shouldn't ever be a reason to take innocent lives. But in this case, there was no provocation. There was no trigger, right? Right. And that, to me, indicates that Hicks had already planned, or at least in his mind, he wanted to do this. This was not something that happened on the spur of the moment. It was not something that was provoked. He hated them for who they were. At least that's how I see all of this. Uh, Yeah, I I don't disagree for sure. But what also surprises me is that police concludes it was an ongoing neighbor dispute over parking. I said, do we have any information as to how police reached that conclusion? Do we have any information around that? Yeah, we definitely do. And and this gets to, you know, the impact that the media has and, and competing narratives around this case. And so, you know, when this happened, obviously, this was actually really big news in the area, not only in North Carolina, but across the country and across the world. Two different competing narratives emerged after the murder. So one was this parking lot dispute. And the second one was something you just alluded to, which was anti-Muslim hate. So the parking lot motive was introduced by Hicks's wife, who announced the motive in a press conference, supposedly to both calm the community and to protect herself from being associated with such an evil guy. I can say with my absolute belief that this incident had nothing to do with religion or victims' faith, but in fact was related to the long-standing parking disputes Um, that that my husband had with the neighbors. And then Hicks actually himself claimed in court that the motive was a parking dispute. And then, as I mentioned before, the police also kind of very quickly said that this was a parking dispute as well. But I just want to note 
that none of the victims were parked in violation to the condo rules on the day of the murder. Hmm. So whatever claim he is making about this was a parking lot dispute, that day none of them were illegally parked. And so let's move on to the anti-Muslim hate motive. So what's interesting is as soon as the murders happened, at least one of the victim's friends immediately asked if Hicks was responsible for the shooting. So clearly there was a history of, you know, hate that this guy had. I'd like to ask um, uh, Amira Atta, uh, you wrote in, in your piece, my best friend was killed and I don't know why. You spoke about an incident in the fall. And she said, oh, my neighbor came to my doorstep and he was holding a gun and was telling me that we were too loud and we woke up his wife. On Tuesday, as we're getting all of the phone calls and everybody's telling us, get to Chapel Hill, I knew automatically <clears throat> because I thought immediately, who would do something like this to them? It was their neighbor. She complains about him. I don't know if he's, how many times he's threatened her. Her dad knows more, but she wasn't comfortable. The families of the victims absolutely believe this was caused by ethnic and religious prejudice and blame the Chapel Hill Police Department for spreading the parking dispute rumor. And then you got to remember that this was kind of right before Trump emerged on the political scene. But Islamophobia was on the rise, and it was okay to be hateful in the public discourse. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. We need to empower law enforcement to patrol and secure Muslim neighborhoods. Bober is suggesting she was scared to get on an elevator with Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who is Muslim, because she was worried Omar might blow it up. It was, and you know, still is, okay to hate Muslims. Dia's sister, Dr. Suzanne Barakat, said, and I quote, had the roles been reversed and the man was Muslim of Arab descent, of South Asian descent, this would have immediately been labeled an act of terror. I haven't heard anyone use the term terrorist here. Why the double standard? He has terrorized our families. He has terrorized our lives. He has terrorized our community locally, nationally, and internationally. And it's time that people call it for what it is. And then one small other note that I found in researching this is that Hicks's own daughter, Sarah, uh, who was 20 years old at the time, called her father a monster. She said that his social media posts became increasingly antagonistic towards other people's beliefs. And she said, quote, I shut him out of my life permanently for not only disrespecting the religious beliefs of others, but bashing them on social media. It was obvious he had a lot of hate in his heart, but I did not know he had developed into a monster and would take another's life. So yeah, these two competing narratives, for me, it's pretty clear that he was motivated by hate and just had a lot of anger towards the three of them. Sadia, what do you think? I said I have a lot of thoughts. First, Hicks' wife. It's very convenient for her to announce quote-unquote motive in a press conference and what the fuck that even means, right? Right. Why is she determining what the motive is? Hicks claiming in court that his motive was a parking dispute? Obviously he would. He was probably trying to protect his wife and his family. And we can link it back to what he initially said to his wife about it's not your fault, so he is somebody who would protect his family. And 
what his daughter said makes a lot of sense to me. But I also want to go back to Suzanne Barakat's quote. I cannot get that visual out of my mind if roles were reversed. And I really want our listeners to sit with this and imagine what Suzanne Barakat said. If roles were really reversed, how would the media tackle it? How would the law enforcement deal with it? How would public opinion change? I can guarantee you that nobody in their right mind would say that this was a mere parking dispute. So those are my thoughts. And I'm with you on that. There's no doubt that had the rules been reversed, the media coverage would have been a lot worse and it would have focused on terrorists commits this heinous crime. It's pretty clear that it was not a parking dispute and it was motivated by hate. One thing I should note is that five days before the murder, a judge ordered Hicks to actually appear in a future hearing over unpaid child support, which some people think may have set him off. Set him off on a killing spree? That's what people are saying. And again, that is ludicrous as well. So, you know, I want to talk about how the world and the community actually responded to this. It obviously created national and actually international outrage and a lot of fear in the American Muslim community. President Obama at the time actually denounced what he called, quote, brutal and outrageous murders, saying no one in the United States should ever be targeted because of who they are, what they look like, or how they worship. Because our right to worship freely and safely. And that was denied Muslims in Chapel Hill. The hashtags Muslim Lives Matter and Chapel Hill shooting trended. And very quickly across the public sphere, there was discussion about how this was a hate crime. I will say on a positive note, there were some really encouraging kind of developments because the American Muslim population in North Carolina was relatively young and savvy. They were incredibly proactive in vocalizing their message via social media and trying to create positive change. And then the Muslim founder of the Carolina Peace Center, which advocates for equality, also noted that this kind of strengthened the community and believed that it set off a dialogue about Islamophobia. Yeah, but the unfortunate reality is Islamophobia still exists. It got worse during Trump's four years of presidency. And people still don't recognize it as much in political and social discourse. So a lot of Muslims like you and me are really dealing with the menace of Islamophobia in America. And the truth of the matter is, is that it can be small microaggressions or it could be big things like this. All of us are dealing with different things on a near daily basis. I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to know, how was this crime investigated? Yeah, yeah, the great question. So first of all, Hicks was indicted by a grand jury on three counts of first-degree murder and one count of discharging a firearm into an occupied dwelling. The Council on American Islamic Relations and the Muslim Public Affairs Council, two civil rights groups, requested a federal investigation if motives proved to be hate-based. And 
of the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District of North Carolina said, quote, the incident appears to be isolated rather than part of an organized campaign against Muslims in the state, and they said that no federal investigation was underway. I found other information that said the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice had launched their own investigations into the shooting, but it turns out that federal authorities could not find sufficient evidence to charge Hicks with a hate crime. What does that even mean, Asad? We will get to that in just a second. I just want to wrap up by saying that Hicks's trial was scheduled to take place in the summer of 2019. In June of that year, Hicks pleaded guilty to the murders and was sentenced to three consecutive terms of life imprisonment. So yes, Adia, now is the time for our hate crime discussion. You know, was this a hate crime? Was this not a hate crime? I do want to share one thing in particular, and that is while most states have some form of hate crime legislation, North Carolina, their hate crime legislation applies only to misdemeanors and not murder. What? Yeah, they have an ethnic intimidation law that applies to lower level crimes such as cross burnings or assault or vandalism, which may otherwise not receive punishment or prison sentences. So that's one little thing that I wanted to bring up, which is why perhaps at least at the state level, this was not considered a hate crime. But as I said before, on a federal level, it was also not considered a hate crime. So, Sadia, what do you think? Hate crime, 100%. There's no doubt about it. I mean, all the evidence in the case points to him being motivated by hate for Muslims, hate for war, who these people were and what they represented. The fact that he shot them execution style, that he entered their apartment and methodically killed them. It's clear to me that this was a hate crime. You know, when this happened in 2015, I was obsessed with the incident and I was doing so much research at the time on victims but I also wanted to know who the murderer was and I remember there were pictures later I don't know what year it was because I subsequently would do you know research to see what was going on with the case if any new legislation had been passed and I remember seeing a picture of Hicks in court with a smirk on his face. And I kid you not, Asad, that has been etched in my memory forever. The audacity of this person to commit such a heinous crime and then be so nonchalant about it. And just the mere fact that he turned himself in, he said he wanted to plead guilty from the beginning, shows that he probably did not and does not have any remorse. He probably thought he did the right thing. What do you think? I, well, I think that's exactly right. And this gets to the rhetoric of the day, you know, in the mid-2010s. All the rhetoric on certain channels were anti-Muslim and we were being blamed for everything. And so this person probably thought this was his duty to get rid of the Muslims that were living in his neighborhood. And it's just, it's so scary. It's just so, like you, I remember when this happened and, 
you know, I believe this parking dispute narrative because that's what the media fed me for years almost. Mm. And it wasn't until I was doing research for our other podcast a couple of years ago and I dug a little bit deeper and read some articles about how that was just made up. You know, in 2016, so a year after the murder, the Chapel Hill police chief said that he regretted including the parking dispute in the narrative and apologized to the family for adding to their pain. Yes, we would do that differently now, and I think that's something you can only learn through experience. Certainly what we've learned since then, what was intended to be informational, felt dismissive, presumptuous, um, and, and really um, insulting in some ways. And so clearly this parking dispute was just bullshit, you know, like it was, it was made up and it was there to cover for hate. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I said, I wonder what few months or years after that looked like, if you have any updates post this crime. Yeah, so as you can imagine, the community came together um, in North Carolina, and within a month of the shootings, donations to a nonprofit that DIA was connected to that provided Syrian refugees with dental care in Turkey exceeded half a million dollars. And then, you know, more recently, after the murders, another nonprofit was founded by members of the family in memory of Dia Yusser and Razan, and they called it Our Three Winners. And their mission is to promote equity and reduce prejudice towards Muslims and other marginalized communities in America through advocacy, service, and evidence-based programming. We'll have links to the show notes to that. It's definitely a great place for you to see pictures of the victims as well. I want to end with one thing that I found. Do you know this project called StoryCorps on NPR where they, you know, one person comes on to interviews another person? Well, actually, Yusser took part in that and interviewed her principal of her former Islamic school. And um, I just want to, you know, share this quote that she had on that podcast, which was, quote, Growing up in America has been such a blessing. And although in some ways I do stand out, such as, you know, the hijab, the the head covering, um, there's still so many ways that I feel so embedded in the fabric that is our culture. And here we're all one. Oh, I said, this breaks my heart. It really is just tragic that these people are, are no longer, you know, with us. Welcome back. Sadia, you know, I wanted to share some updates. As we kind of mentioned in the show, there's this nonprofit called Our3Winners.org that is continuing on kind of the mission and honoring Dia, Yusser, and Razan's uh, legacies and fighting anti-Muslim hate. And, you know, they announced uh, a couple uh, grantee award winners um, recently, and I just want to share some of the stuff that they're doing in Dia, Yusser, and Razan's honor. So the first one was they're providing grants to DYOR Dental Clinic, which provides dental care for marginalized and displaced people. They are also giving a grant to the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding, which is researching the portrayals of Muslims in media to better understand how our communities are seen and heard. They are giving a grant to the Islamic Scholarship Fund, one of our partners here at Rafaleon. And the reason they're doing that is to build the next generation of Muslims working in the media to represent and tell our own stories. The fourth one is the Lighthouse Project, which is empowering young Muslims in our community to achieve their goals and pursue their passions. 
And the final one is a documentary, actually, called 36 Seconds, and it's by Tarek Al-Baba. And that is telling the story of Dia Yusser and Razan's murders and highlighting the change that needs to happen. So we'll have links to all of these projects in our show notes. And just, you know, I think it's it's great that their legacy continues. Absolutely, Asad. It's such an important point. So, Asad, before we say goodbye to our listeners, I want to give a huge, huge shout out to one of our listeners. Her name is Kat Alvarado. And she has DM'd us a couple of times, appreciating the stories that we are sharing on this platform. And we are so thankful. We are humbled. We are moved by this. And you know what? I can tell that Kat is listening to all our episodes because she said that she would buy that T-shirt that Asad and I talked about in one of our previous episodes. Amazing. Agree to disagree, right? <laughs> um, so thank you, Kat. And thank you to all listeners who listen to us, haven't written to us yet. We really look forward to hearing from you. And do share your thoughts with us. It really makes our hearts sing. Totally. And you can do that on Twitter, Instagram, or email us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. And then, yeah, thanks again for listening. Please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Isabel Havens, Emmanuel Monahan, Lindsay Gamble, and Paroma Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. And we will be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Huh?